Well, I'll say once again, good morning. Uh, always great to be with you. Uh, for those of you, again, who are new with us today, we are currently in a teaching series working through the book of Second Peter. Uh, we've just been working through it the last couple weeks together, verse by verse. And so I want to invite you now to, to grab a Bible, if you haven't already done this, and turn there with us, okay? The book of Second Peter. Around uh, 15 years ago, uh, there was a movie that came out. It was like a, a classic <laughs> called The Bucket List, right? It was with, it's not a classic. It was with Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson, okay? And it's about these uh, two older gentlemen. They get a really serious disease. I, I believe both of them get cancer of some sort. And um, they're told in that uh, that there's no cure, that they don't have long uh, to live. And it just so happens that both of these two individuals um, end up in the same hospital, but not only the same hospital, they end up in the same hospital uh, room together. And in that room, they're, they're talking about their lives and their hopes and, and their dreams. And what they decide to do together is to do all of these like grandiose, crazy things, these bucket list items, if you will, um, activities, like they're both these older guys, like we're going to go skydiving, right? Like all this stuff, uh, all these trips, seeing the world, like uh, all these things that they've always wanted to do but never had the time to do them. They want to accomplish these things before they die. And so they literally, from there, they, they go out and they start living like they're dying because um, they are. They start living their lives as if they're running out of time. Because they are. Now, I bring that up because what we're going to see in today's passage is that the Apostle Peter is writing knowing that he is running out of time, that he is going to die very soon. And in light of that, he has a message for the church, an urgent message for all of those who follow Jesus. And I'll sum that message up like this. That you and I, you and I, God's people, should live our lives with the end in mind because of the certainty of the second coming of Jesus. That you and I should live our lives as though this world is temporary. Why? Because we have evidence, we have assurance that Jesus is coming back. You see... At the time that Peter was writing this letter, there were these false teachers that had been going around and they'd made their way, creeped in to these different churches. And they were denying the second coming of Jesus. They were going around teaching that this was like a fallacy, that Jesus wasn't going to come back. And therefore, what they said was, um, you can live now however you want. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. Jesus isn't coming back. So uh, live however you want. Do whatever you want. And so getting wind of that, hearing that, knowing that, while at the same time knowing that he will die very soon, Peter responds. He responds. Look at verse 12. He says this, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. 
So Peter says, therefore, therefore, and we learned this last week, but Peter is saying, because Jesus is establishing for us or providing us entrance into his eternal kingdom for those who grow in godliness, he says, therefore, in light of that truth, I want to remind you of these qualities. I want to remind you to keep pursuing these virtues that characterize godliness. And we looked at those eight virtues last week through verses five through seven. And notice here as well that this is a reminder. This isn't some new information. It's a reminder. He says to the church, you already know the truth. You know it. You are established, in other words, you're established in the gospel. You have a firm foundation. But once again, I want to remind you. And why? Well, because of how easy it is for you and I to drift. You see, if we are not purposefully and intentionally living our lives for Christ, if we're not intentional about how we go about our lives, about pursuing the things of God, it is so easy for our hearts to grow cold to the things of God in the gospel. Especially, especially when you have false teachers teaching you another truth. People in authority who are over you, uh, encouraging you to, to go another direction. That's difficult. And of course, Peter himself, he knew this from his own life, right? We see in Peter's own life, one day he was making a very bold proclamation, a confession for Christ. We see this in Mark chapter 8. Jesus says, who do people say that I am, right? And he's waiting for a response. And, oh, some say you're this, some say this. And Peter says, no, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This bold proclamation of faith. But then not too long after that, we know that Peter is actually denying that he even knew who Jesus was. Peter says here, you guys know the truth. But I want, you, I want to remind you again of the truth. And then he just reiterates that in verse 13. He says this, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So we see here uh, that Peter is, again, he's very aware that his death is coming. It's coming soon. And he actually says here that Jesus himself made that clear to him. Jesus revealed that to him, which is likely a reference to John chapter 21, where Jesus tells Peter, you're going to die. And he explains to him how he would die, that he would be crucified. But beyond that, notice how Peter describes his death. This is very interesting and important to the text. He says, as long as I am in this body, and I encourage you to highlight that or underline or circle that word body, I want to remind you, since I know the putting off of my, here it is again, my body will be soon. That word body there. It's a great word. It's, it's actually the word tent. It's the word tent. And I believe this teaches us so much, so much about 
the nature of our lives. See, what we know about tents, uh, I don't know, maybe one of you is a tent expert, I'm not, but what we know about tents is that they are temporary, right? They're temporary. At one point, you unfold them and you do your little camping out thing, but eventually you fold it back up and put it back in its package. And likewise, Peter says, it is with our bodies. Our death, it's that the same. It's like our lives are like camping is almost what he's saying. We are here temporarily on this earth. We're camping out, if you will. But eventually, our tents, our lives will fold up and we will move on. And you know, there's something about camping. There's something about tenting that has a tendency to bring you back to the basics, right? The basics of life. Uh, I'm not speaking of experience here, by the way. Right? My idea of camping out is the Hyatt Hotel. Right? I have no desire to sleep outside with the bugs or sleep on hard ground. I have a really deep philosophy. No toilet, no thank you. All right? That's how I live my life. Right? It's one of the key. All right? Take that proverb home with you. All right? Not interested. All right? All right? I've been camping twice. Right? Friends of mine, oh, you'll love it. It's great. You'll be one with nature again. Halfway through the night, 3.30 in the morning, can't sleep. I'm like, you're not going to make it through the night. Like, I, this, is, this is it. I can't do this. I've been told, though, right? I've been told that camping, particularly tenting, okay? Not glamping, all right? Korean. Particularly tenting is very simplistic. It's very simple. Uh, you just have the basics. And, and you mostly only bring with you intentionally what, what you need. You don't bring a lot with you. You don't carry a lot with you. And perhaps through camping or tenting out, you realize how much you can actually live without, right? Just the essentials. And Peter says, again, our body is is like a tent. It's it's temporary. It's fragile. Our lives are a bit flimsy. They, They don't last, and they're not meant to. And I believe the underlying principle here is that we should be living our lives as though they are fragile, as though they are temporary. Again, because they are. Uh, You might say, we should be, again, we should live our lives like we're camping out. We should live our lives as though there's no permanency here. Or you could say it this way, or maybe write this down, we should live with the end in mind. We should live our lives with the end in mind. I believe that's what Peter is telling us here. See, our tents, for those of us in this room, our tents have been established here. They've been set up here on this earth for now. But Peter tells us that Jesus is establishing for us a permanent house, a permanent kingdom. And so we live our lives not looking to today, but towards that future day with him in that kingdom. We look forward to packing up our tents and establishing ourselves in that place, in that kingdom with Jesus. I know for, at least for me, tenting out, it makes me long for home. I'm I'm done. Like after a weekend of tenting out, I'd be like, I desperately just want to be back in my bed. I desperately want the air con. That's the same thing again with our lives. Living our lives in this world should make us desperate 
longing to go back to our home because we were not made for here, but we were made for there with him, to be with him. So, so think about this then. And I believe, again, this is what Peter's getting at and why he's writing here with urgency. And the question we could ask ourselves is if that's the nature of our lives, if we're just tenting, if you will, out, why? Why spend so much time establishing ourselves here? Why, why do we put so much time, so much effort, so much energy making ourselves comfortable? Striving to make ourselves more and more comfortable in a place that will not last. Right? Like if you and I were going out camping together and we got to some campground and we knew we were only going to be there for the weekend. We're going to be there two nights, the weekend. So we take our tent and we set it all up. We probably wouldn't spend like a day and a half making that tent perfect. Mowing the grass out. We're going to build a fence around it, right? We're going to plant a bunch of flowers. and like We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't spend our time doing those things. I'm not going to make my investment there. I'm not going to take my resources and place them there because that's a really bad investment. And yet, you and I have a tendency of doing this. We worry and stress and think about things so much that don't last. We, we tend to pursue temporary gain over anything else. And so Peter says, no, like, live your life with the end in mind. Live your life as though your life here is temporary. And, and again, what does that actually look like? Well, according to Peter here, what he's been telling us is that living your life for the things of the kingdom, it looks like being diligent to pursue godliness. That's a good investment. Pursuing godliness with your time, with your resources, with your energy. It looks like making every effort to grow in Christ's likeness. Living with the end of mind looks like investing in the kingdom of God. And that also looks like helping other people grow in their knowledge of Jesus as well. It looks like, help, it looks like helping others. Peter says, he's actually saying here, it's pretty humbling. He says, I want to spend the rest of my days stirring you up by way of reminder. That's how I want to spend my time. I want to stir you up. He He's speaking here about our affection, our affections. He's speaking here about our, our love for Jesus. This is all about our heart. I think this is just so powerful. I think of all the verses. This just challenged me so much. I had to ask myself. Actually, it stopped writing. And I just thought, oh, God, like, do I think this way? Am I living my life this way? Peter says, I want to spend the the rest of my days, the days that Jesus gives me here on this earth, while my tent is still here, and then beyond that, those days, he says, verse 15, even after I'm gone, I want to help make sure that you move beyond knowing truth, knowing about Jesus, to moving towards beholding Jesus beholding the wonders of Christ. I want to spend my days adoring Jesus 
and, and helping to stir your affections, stirring your hearts to do the exact same thing. That's how I want to live my life. So again, Peter says, in light of the gospel, in light of, in light of what we know about Jesus and his coming kingdom, in light of the truth that Jesus is coming again and Jesus is bringing us home, live with the end in mind. Live your life as though life is temporary. And again, what does that look like? It looks like being diligent to pursue godliness, which happens when our hearts are stirred towards the wonders of Jesus and the gospel. And then from there, I believe Peter does something really interesting here. He, he essentially gives us the why. Why do this? Why live our lives this way? Why should we not live for the temporal? Why should we not live for the things of this world and instead pursue the things of the kingdom? And the short answer is because we have evidence. We have evidence that Jesus is returning for the church because of the certainty of the second coming. We know this is going to happen. Jesus is coming back, and so we should live our lives this way. That's essentially what he's going to tell us. Now, I briefly had mentioned this before, but we know among a lot of other things, there was this group of people, false teachers, they're actually Gnostics, okay? If you're curious in researching it, you can, who were going around denying the coming of Christ. They were going around saying, literally, they were saying, this is a fable, or um, they're using the word myth, which Peter's about to use himself. And so Peter combats that here with three things. He's saying, I know what these people are going around teaching you, but let me tell you why they're wrong and why you should live your life a certain way for the things of the kingdom. And he says to them, I know this is true because of what I've seen, I know this is true because of what I've heard. And I know this is true because of what I've read. So that's what we're going to talk about through our remainder of our time together. Because of what Peter has seen, because of what Peter has heard, and because of what Peter has read. In other words, he's going to tell us there is adequate evidence for the second coming of Jesus. And because of that certain reality, we need to live our lives accordingly. And so this is how Peter starts this evidence. It's in verse 16. He says this, For we did not not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That word myth here, it's used a few different times in the New Testament, and it's always in a derogatory way. It's a negative term. So these false teachers, again, they're basically saying Jesus' return is just a story. It's just an urban legend. Um, It's in the same category as like Zeus or Hercules in Greek mythology, no different. But of course, we know that the Bible is based on verifiable events. The, The stories of the Bible take place in real historical places, locations. They take place at specific times. And specific dates. And so Peter here is going to defend the second coming, first through his personal experience, and then second through the scriptures themselves. And we see the way that he starts his defense is by pointing to what he saw. That's what he says here in verse 16. And specifically, what he's referring to here is the transfiguration of Jesus. 
He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his glory, if you will. And then he goes on to summarize what happened at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with that story or that event, uh, it's about midway through the gospel accounts. We see it happen in two places, or recorded in two places, in Mark chapter 9. We also see it in Matthew chapter 16. What happens in this time is that Jesus calls three of his disciples to himself. Peter, the one who wrote this, James, and John. Okay? And he calls them up to this mountain, and that mountain is likely Mount Hermon. Okay? It's, in the, it's north of Jerusalem. And we read that they're up on top of this mountain, and it's just, like, unreal. Because on the top of this mountain, uh, Moses appears, okay? You know, the one who, like, helped deliver the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, part of the Red Sea, or God parted it, but used Moses to do it. That Moses shows up on the mountain, and then another guy shows up, Elisha, right? One of the greatest prophets of Israel, the one who didn't die, You know, he like gets caught up in a chariot of fire. He comes back too. They show up. And they are there for a specific purpose. For a very specific reason. Because they are there to represent the law and the prophets. The entirety of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. It's this phenomenal scene. They're there to point to Jesus. But what comes next is even better. Because all of a sudden, the veil of Jesus's Glory is lifted. Okay? Jesus shows the fullness of himself in this moment. Um, he is 100% God, 100% man, but in this moment, his humanness, if you will, is lifted. And the fullness of his glory, his deity, is revealed to these disciples. And at that, if you read the gospel accounts, what you can see is that the gospel writers, Mark and Matthew, are grasping for words to try to describe what they see up there. It's beautiful. It's indescribable. And we read in the gospel accounts that Jesus does this for a very specific reason. It wasn't like to just show off. Like, ta-da, look who I, you know, that's not the reason. It's a very specific purpose. He's trying to, as he always was, teach his disciples to show them what was to come. That's what he says. To show them that he is coming back and also what they will see and what they will experience when he comes back. And so now the Peter who was there, he turns here now in this writer back to 2 Peter. And Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of this majesty, of this majesty And it was a preview of the second coming. That's what he says. See the word coming there. It says that. Don't miss this. The word coming there. It's the word parousia. Okay, parousia in Greek. Very, very important terminology here. It's a word in Greek that is always used to describe when a famous person, let's say like um, a politician or a king, were entering into or riding into a specific town. It was used in that context. And in that moment, we know what would happen, is there would be fanfare and emotion and celebration as this king, you know, he would uh, have the the graciousness or the, to to come into our town, right? It would be like, 
you know, I grew up in a really small town in upstate New York, you know, 8,000 people, right? Three stoplights. It would be like the, the president of the United States being like, I'm going to go pay a visit to those people, right? Could you imagine, right? President, it would be like, wow, like, can you believe we're humble that you would come to our small town? That's, that's the idea here, okay? Perusia. And so Jesus here actually, or Peter, uses this term. And we see this used all throughout the New Testament. Over and over again, it always describes the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. Actually, Jesus himself uses this word to describe his second coming. He said this in Mark chapter 14. You can remember, he is arrested. Uh, He is before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Caiaphas is furious. And he says, enough of this trial. We're getting nowhere with this. Tell us who you are. Right? Are you the son of the blessed one? Are you the son of God? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. And then he says, and coming, Perusia, with the clouds of heaven. I'm God. Yep, I'm God. And I'm here, but also I'm coming back. That's what he says. And at that, we know Caiaphas tears his robe because that was blasphemy in Jewish culture. And Jesus is crucified right, the next day. So Peter first points here to what he saw. This is his first proof, if you will. I saw the glory of Christ. Jesus personally showed himself, revealed himself to me, so that he could point us all to his return, so that he could assure us that he is coming again soon. And then we see Peter points to what he heard, to what he heard. This is the second evidence for Jesus' second coming. Look at verses 17 through 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen, here it is. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, at the end of verse 16, it said they saw Jesus's majesty okay don't miss this part and now peter refers to the majesty of god the father so we saw the majesty of jesus and we heard the majesty of god the father and so we have this very clear truth here that the father and the son they share actually in this majesty they are both divine both equal of praise because they are both equally God. That's what Peter is saying here. And then Peter does us a, I don't know, a favor. I don't know if you want to say it, but I'm thankful he does this. He takes us deeper into this moment on the mountain. He says, we saw Jesus in the fullness of his glory. And then that was accompanied by a soundtrack, if you will. Because we also, in that moment, heard this voice, audible voice from heaven. And notice he says, I didn't just hear this, but we heard this. In other words, James and John heard this. Moses and Elijah who were up there, they heard this. We heard this together. In other words, this is a group experience. And that's very, very important because a group testimony, a group experience is much more powerful and much more convincing than an individual's experience, right? 
They all heard this together. They heard God the Father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so three of the disciples, not only did they see Jesus glorified that day, but they also heard the voice of God that day, affirming Jesus for who he is and what he is doing and what he will do. And this is what John, the Apostle John, who's also on that mountain that day, this is exactly what he writes about. In 1 John chapter 1, this is what he said. He says this, that, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard and which we have seen with our very own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands, they have touched. This is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. So this is the message. This is the message from the apostles, from Jesus' closest disciples. They say, we are eyewitnesses. We saw his works. We have heard his words. We've had personal experiences with Jesus. And he, Jesus, he changed our lives. He, he transformed our hearts and our lives. So you and I now, we, we look to the apostles of Jesus. But even beyond that, we, we, we look to those throughout church history who have, have similarly or had a similar experience of inviting Jesus into their lives and their lives being radically changed. Peter says, I know, church, I know Jesus is coming back. This isn't an opinion. I saw Jesus. I've listened to all his teachings. He, he told me he's, he's coming back. We have been told he's coming back. And I've heard the Father, God the Father's confirmation of this. Jesus will return. And I believe this so much, Peter is really saying here in this section. I believe this so much. I am so assured of this truth that I'm willing to die for it. And spend the rest of my life defending it. In fact, I'm going to die for this truth. I am going to be crucified for this reality that Jesus is coming soon. And for some, that would be enough evidence. They would listen to Peter and hear him and watch the way that he is living his life. Watch the apostles, this, this radical living forsaking the world and pursuing the things of the kingdom, and that'd be enough to turn to the gospel, but it wasn't enough for Peter, apparently. Because look at verse 19. He says this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So do you see what Peter is, is doing here? Um, his readers um, that day, back in the first century, his readers then, but also his readers now, including us, who are reading through this text now, um, we haven't seen what Peter has seen. And we didn't hear what Peter heard, what the other apostles heard, but Like Peter, we do have the scriptures. And so Peter says, 
I have certainty of the second coming because of what I saw, because of what I heard, but also now because of what I read, which you can also read. So Peter provided for us first personal experience, personal evidence, and that, again, it's very powerful, it's profound. But now he turns to scriptural evidence for the second coming. And I should say this, that along with this passage of text being evidence, which it is for the second coming, it also, this text, tells us quite a bit about the nature of scripture itself. So in verse 19, Peter says, pay attention, he says, pay attention to the scriptures. That's what he's saying. And in that, he says, we have this prophetic word that is more fully confirmed. In other words, he says, he's not saying that my personal testimony or personal evidence is like not as good. He's not saying that, actually. He's saying, we have reason, we have reason today to believe to believe in the scriptures because many, many times the events that are recorded in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, those things have taken place. That things that were predicted once are now occurring now or have occurred. And of course, we know the Bible is full of fulfilled prophecy. Um, I do not have the, the time uh, to do the full study on this today, but it's worth your time. It's an incredible study, especially when you consider um, just how the Bible testifies to itself over centuries and centuries. You know, it's incredible that we have this book. You have access. It's in front of you in the seat pocket in front of you. If you need it, you don't have one, take it with you, okay? It's yours. It's a gift from me, all right? You you, you have this from our church, of course. I'm giving you permission, so that's why I said me, so I'm the blame, okay? Um, But take it, all right? Uh, But it's incredible. We have this book that says things like this specific people group, they will be in slavery for 400 years. And then time goes by and this specific people group is put into slavery. And guess for how long? 400 years. Or we know early in the scriptures, it says that it's actually predicted by the prophets that the Israelites are going to be taken into captivity. Jerusalem is going to be ruined and they will be taken out of Jerusalem and brought into captivity. Or that beyond that, again, I said, Jerusalem will be destroyed, decimated. The great Jerusalem, the city of God, the city on a hill. And then a hundred years goes by, and that very same thing happens. I dare you right now, try it right now. You can, you know, I give you permission Write something down right now. Predict something and be a little bit bold with it. That'll happen next week. See how accurate you can be. Try predicting something that'll happen six months from now. There was actually a study. It was interesting. Um, a study. I forget. Somewhere on the East Coast. Um, but a study was done. They took um, uh, 400 and I think 30 people in this text case. And they all wrote down. Um, I think it might have been in Time Magazine even. They wrote down what they thought like the America would look like and be like, what would happen in six months? So they figure, okay, like, how much prediction? Because they were trying to do a thing on like, can people tell the future, all this stuff, right? 430 people. And like, what would be a decent percentage? Like you would guess one thing. So they said, 10 things we think are going to happen in six months. 
So 430 times 10, 4,300 predictions. Like, how many do you think they got right? 4,300. The answer, zero. Six months. Try predicting something that's going to happen 100 years from now. Right? That's what we see all across the scriptures. The Bible, you know how amazing this? We don't talk about this enough. In Isaiah chapter 45, it actually says there, there will be a man whose name is Cyrus. And Cyrus will be the king, and that man is going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And you know what happens? 160 years goes by. And a man named Cyrus is born. And he's made king, and he makes this decision out of the blue. I think I got a good idea. Let's rebuild the temple. Didn't have access to the scriptures either, by the way. Because he wasn't Jewish. Unreal. Listen, we could do an entire year-long study on all the prophecies and predictions. We could just start with Jesus. Jesus, I think the number is somewhere. Jesus fulfills somewhere around 337 prophecies in the Gospels about what would happen in his life. Unbelievable. Countless promises fulfilled. And so what Peter is saying here is that Listen, you might not believe my personal experiences, what I saw and what we heard on that mountain that day. But what I am saying to you is also confirmed in the scriptures. It's already been predicted. It's already been written. And so what's the message here? Well, Peter's saying again, pay attention to what the scriptures say. Pay attention until the morning star rises in our hearts. That word morning star, it's referring to Jesus and his second coming. In other words, until Jesus comes again, be on the lookout. Be in the word. Pay attention. That's the message. The Bible is pointing you and I to Jesus. It always has been. Always has been from the beginning. It pointed to his birth. It pointed to his life. It pointed to his death. It predicted his resurrection, and all of those predictions, prophecies, came to pass. Every single one of them. A baby was born in Bethlehem. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in three days, predicted, 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 and he rose from the grave. Bodily, predicted, came to pass. And so Peter says, when it comes to the second coming, it's been predicted, so believe it. All these other prophecies, hundreds and hundreds have come to pass. And so when the scripture says that the day of the Lord is coming, that Jesus is coming back, we should believe it. We should stand firm on that truth. We should pay attention. Pay attention, verse 20, knowing, he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this here, it speaks to the reliability of the scriptures themselves, that they are dependable, they are reliable. Peter says, no prophecy of scripture, no prediction, or no truth in specific, uh, specifically, comes from another person's interpretation. That is to say, the scriptures do not come from an individual's understanding of the events that they witnessed or experienced. This is so important for us to understand. The scriptures are not written words of someone or a group of people saying, 
This is how we're interpreting what we saw. This is what we believe happened. And because of that, this is what we believe will come to pass. See, what was likely happening is these false teachers, these Gnostics, they were saying, well, sure, of course, like we affirm, we believe. The disciples heard these things from Jesus. They were with him. They, they, they were taught all these things. Right? They'd seen the miracles even. But what these apostles, what these disciples are teaching you is just their own understanding of what happened. See how they're twisting the truth? Oh, we believe that they saw. We believe that they heard. But we don't know what the interpretation of what Jesus said was. Right? This is just their interpretation. They're guessing at things. They're making predictions. And so Peter wants us to see is that not only did they see and hear, but they actually were given the understanding of what they saw and what they heard as well. That is vitally important. Okay? Vitally important for you to know as you pick up God's word. These writers were given understanding. They weren't making their own assumptions or interpretations. They weren't going back and studying the Old Testament and saying, well, based on this event, this event, this event, this is what we think this means. No, no, no. They were given understanding. So let me give you an example. Take the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross. We know this. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were crucified before Jesus. Like, this is not... The way Jesus died, like on the cross, actually, like we can almost glorify that, right? We, people wear the crosses and stuff like that. And, and actually, it's just, it was a symbol of torture. It was common. This wasn't like special. Like, well, we usually like, you know, behead people. But for that King Jesus, we're going to crucify him. It's going to be this event. That's not what's happening. Thousands and thousands of people are crucified before Jesus. So what makes Jesus' dying on the cross special? You know, what makes it so significant? Well, we know that, first of all, Jesus predicted his death. Right? He said, this is how I'm going to die, and this is why. That he actually explains to his followers why he needed to die, and what the meaning of his death would be. He explained its significance. And so, not only were there eyewitnesses to the cross, and, and hearing, uh, hearings of teachings about the cross, but then there was also interpretation given on the symbol of the cross. An, imp- an explanation that was given by Jesus himself. So the words of scripture are not from man, but from God himself, which is what Peter is saying in verse 21. He says, he says there, essentially he says, no one woke up one day and said, you know what I think is would be a good usage of my time? I'll write some scripture. Like that, that didn't take place. Like I think I'll just write a few words and, and say it's from God. Right? That's not how this text, that those words on those pages in front of you, that's not how this came about. Rather, men spoke from God, he said, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see here, the Bible is not only reliable, but it is also inspired. That's what Peter is saying. It's not only reliable, we can trust it, but it is also inspired. Inspired, it means not like, um, it's not like saying inspired, like, oh, like LeBron James is my inspiration. You know, he just makes me want to be a better player. It's not that. That's how we think of inspiration. Not that, okay? Inspired here, it means these words were literally breathed out by God. 
They're from God. They are God's word. So get this. What happened is, Peter says, is that God used human beings like myself, like Peter, to write these words. But, but, each writer was carried along, great phrase, carried along by the Holy Spirit. That phrase, carried along, um, it can also be translated moved. Some of you have that version in front of you. Moved by the Holy Spirit. And Peter here, he's actually using a nautical term. He's using a sailing term. It's beautiful. The, the idea here is that we know this if you've ever been sailing. I don't do camping or sailing, by the way. <laughs> I'll move on. The idea here is, okay, the idea here is that as the sails go up, what we know happened is that that, doesn't, that that action of putting up the sails actually doesn't do anything but put up sails. That for the ship to actually move, it requires the wind. The, the wind is what moves the ship. The wind is what determines ultimately the direction of the ship. And so Peter says, likewise, the, author, the authors of the scriptures, they put up the sails, if you will. They sat in the chair. They got the parchment out. They, they took the quill and the ink. But God himself, the Holy Spirit, carried, moved the text. He, God, determined exactly what was written and what would be said. Every jot, line, every tittle, every dot, all of it inspired by God. And so here is what we have in this text today, in 2 Peter. Peter says, time is short for me. But beyond that, time is short for all of you. We're just tenting. We're camping out. And so, in light of that, live your life with the end in mind. We should live our lives as though they are temporary. And why? Why? Because of the certainty of the second coming. Because Jesus is coming again soon. And we have evidence that this is true. Listen, if you... If you have, if you have what you saw and you have what you heard, apart from what the Bible says, all you have is just some emotions and some opinions. And if you have God's word, but you've never experienced the truth of his word, and you can have, there's no way to experience the truth of those words, then so what? But the good news of the gospel is that we actually have both. God's word is is clear. It is predicted and promised. Jesus is coming again. And and, and if you put your, your trust and faith in that reality today, the good news of the gospel is that you will experience, not just know, facts, You will experience genuine hope, genuine peace, genuine love, and genuine grace. See, because because we are assured that Jesus is coming for us, that should, it should set our hearts ablaze. We should be people of, of passion. We should be people of adoration. We should be people who live 
our lives to give God glory. We should live our lives giving glory to the one, the majestic one who is richly providing us entrance into his eternal kingdom. Jesus is coming back to bring us home. And so in the, in the midst of a dark world, a dark world, this dark place, Peter says, let's live our lives paying attention. Let's, let's be people who continually turn to the gospel, who turn to and rely on, depend on the word of God, which is a, a lamp that promises to light our path. Let's let God's word, his reliable, his inspired word, guide us to the ways of Christ until our tents move from this earth to the new kingdom that is to come. And I'll close with this today. King Solomon, the great king of Israel, wisest man who ever lived, he said this simple truth in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says this, there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. There is a time to die. So many of us are so concerned with how we live our lives and that matters. (laughs) But we are, are striving to think, how do I live well? But for the follower of Jesus, We don't just consider how do we live well. We also consider how do we die well. There's a time to be born and there is a time to die. So ask yourself today, are you keeping the end in mind? Because if you are, it should change the way that you see this world. It should change the way that you see others, it should change the way that you see your family, your your career, um, yourself. And most important, it should change the way that you see God. Church family, let's live with the end in mind. Because we don't know how long we have. We don't. And we do know the certainty of the second coming. Amen? Let me pray for you.